Well, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you back to Jesus on Prophecy. Tonight, our topic is Prophecy's Final World Superpower. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about this topic. It sounds like something we really want to dive into, and I do. So let's just get into it. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, as we get into prophecy, we understand that there are symbols and and things that we are having a struggle with to understand, and so we need Your help. You promised the disciples that You would send the Holy Spirit who would lead them into all truth. And Lord, we know You uh, have given that same promise to us. And so we're going to claim that promise tonight. And we're going to pray and ask that You will give us ears to hear. You will give us eyes to see. And Lord, You will give us minds to understand that You will make the truth so clear to us that we can't miss it. And Lord, we want to ask You to show us how You would apply the truth to our lives so that You can transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. On April 12, 1912, just a little over a hundred years ago, the world's largest ship set off on its maiden voyage. They left Southampton, England, and they were headed to New York, New York. They were going in a westerly direction at 26 miles per hour, and there were 2,200 people on board. Some of the world's wealthiest and most famous people were there, And they were on board on that maiden voyage because they didn't realize, they didn't know that they were heading directly into tragedy. And on Sunday morning, on the third day of their journey, the Titanic was steaming across the icy Atlantic Ocean, oblivious to the danger that they were heading into. Around 9 a.m. that morning, they received a message telling them that there were icebergs in the water ahead of them, and for some reason, that message never got written down, and the message was never heeded. And in in the afternoon on that same day, at at 1.42 in the afternoon, they did receive another message, and It was the same message. There were icebergs in the area. And this time it did get written down. And this time the message was given to the captain. And so the captain and the managing director both knew that there were icebergs ahead. There was a danger ahead. And yet still they did not slow down. They did not turn the course, but they kept going full speed ahead. By the end of the day, there were seven messages that they had received that there was a danger of icebergs in their path, and still they did not change their course. Still they did not slow down, but they continued full speed ahead. And then uh, just a little bit before midnight, 
when everything seemed to be going well, the children were sleeping, the band was playing, there were small pockets of people who were visiting and, and, and fellowshipping and laughing. The lookout was up in the crow's nest, the highest point of the ship, and he noticed a large, ominous white object straight in their path. And so he grabbed the phone and he yelled down to the bridge, Iceberg dead ahead! And the crew did everything that they could to try and avoid that iceberg, but it was all to no avail. All too soon, that peaceful atmosphere was going to change as the Titanic had an impact with that iceberg. They didn't hit it head on, but they hit it on the side. And that iceberg, as they hit it, caused a loud bang and then a scraping along the side of the hull. There, as they impacted it, there was the shock wave that went through the ship. And then when they got by it, the crew assessed the damage and they had a 300-foot gash on the side of the world's largest ship and they were taking on water faster than the bilge pumps could get it out. Mayday messages went out, but the closest ship to them was 58 miles away. And eventually... Finally, it got to the point where Captain Smith commanded that the lifeboats be dropped down into the water. And when they started doing that, tragically, they discovered that there were only enough lifeboats for about 1,100 people, only about half of the passengers. And the strangest thing of all is as they were trying to get people to get into the lifeboats, there were many people that refused to get on because they had been told that the ship was unsinkable. In fact, one of the members of the building company said that even God Himself couldn't sink that ship. And two hours and 40 minutes after the first contact with the iceberg, the Titanic sank into the icy waters of the Atlantic. And in the end, only 711 people out of the 2,200 survived. Now here's my point. Friends, that tragedy could have been avoided. They had received many, many warnings. They were told that the icebergs were there. They knew that there was a possibility that they could come into contact with them. And still they didn't slow down and still they didn't change their course. And friends, I want to tell you that prophecy clearly and unmistakably reveals that like the Titanic, we are on a collision course with a destiny that is going to affect each and every one of us. This world, also like the Titanic, has received messages of warning of the prophetic events that are just ahead. 
those warnings are found in the Word of God, and we studied some of those warnings last night, didn't we? But the question for tonight is, what are we going to do with those warnings? Are we going to take notice of them? Are we going to act accordingly? Or are we going to have those warnings go unheeded just like Harry Truman did on Mount St. Helen and just like the crew did on the Titanic? Friends, it is vitally important that we recognize the signs that Jesus is giving us of His soon return and we pay attention to the prophecies and so that He can steer us through the murky waters of these last day events that are coming upon the world. I want you to notice that in Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them." In other words, God is telling us, I know the end from the beginning. And I am warning you, I'm giving you signs of things to look for, and I'm trying to direct you through this challenging time that is ahead of you. And so we need to pay attention to what God is telling us. We need to put our trust in Him. And we can be sure that He is going to guide us safely if we will heed the warnings that He is giving us. Friends, there is no book more powerful than the Bible. And that's because God alone knows the future. He knows your future tonight. And friends, He can make all things new in your life. But I want you to notice what we are not instructed to do regarding Bible prophecy and the book of Revelation. I want to show you something. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. That's going to be page 1426 if you're using one of our seminar Bibles. Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the book. And I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 10. And he, that is the angel that is giving John this vision, said to me, that is John, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. In other words, what God is telling us is that the book of Revelation is not a sealed book. It is not a book that we can't understand. In fact, the reality is, though, today is there there are a lot of people that think it is, don't they? You ask them to study the book of Revelation and they say, oh no, we can't do that. We can't understand that book. 
But friends, by the very definition, the book of Revelation is a revealing, it's an unfolding Right? And so God is revealing to us throughout the history of man the things that are going to happen. He specifically points us to things that are going to happen at the end so that we can be prepared for those things. And He also reveals to us His Son, Jesus Christ. And so as we go through it, we need to understand that the book of Revelation is not a book that can't be understood, but rather it is one that can be. Now, of course, it's an encrypted book. There are some symbols that are hard to understand. But we can understand them if we know how to look. If we know how to study our Bibles and put it all together. Because the interesting thing about Bible prophecy is that nearly every single prophecy climaxes in the same place. And that is with the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is good news for you and I tonight, isn't it? Jesus Christ is coming. And He is going to be here, I believe, very, very soon. And so as we yield our hearts to Him, as we accept the truth as He reveals it to us in the Bible, it may very well change your life. It may very well be that the things that you learn from the Bible counteract the things that you've been taught. Things that you have perhaps thought were that way your entire life. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I want you to notice there that the blessing doesn't come when we read the book of Revelation. The blessing doesn't come from hearing the book of Revelation. The blessing comes when we hear and we read and we keep the words of the book. In other words, we have to understand what Jesus is telling us to do and then we have to make a choice. He gives us that freedom of choice to see whether we're going to do what He says or not. God is not going to force you to do anything. And He makes a promise here that He is going to return to this earth. But what other book does Jesus refer to as an end time book? Is there anywhere else that we can look and anywhere else that we should be studying? Last night we took a look at an amazing prophecy in Matthew chapter 24 and we saw those signs that Jesus gave us right before His coming. Right? And we saw in that that the coming of Jesus has got to be in the very near future. I would expect that it's going to be in my lifetime. I'm living as though He's coming in my lifetime. If He chooses not to, that's His choice. But I'm going to live as though He's coming tomorrow. 
And I want you to notice, we covered about 10 verses there last night, but we didn't cover that whole prophecy. Notice what Jesus said after those signs. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by who? By Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now you remember that when the disciples came to Jesus, they asked Him two questions. What is going to be the sign of the destruction of the temple? And what's going to be the sign of your coming? To them, it was the same event. But Jesus, knowing that it was two different events, masterfully blended the two of them together. And what He's saying here is that if you want to understand Bible prophecy, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, which hadn't been written yet at that time, if you want to know how to interpret them, you need to read the book of Daniel. You need to study the prophecies of Daniel because they are going to give you the clues that you need to understand the book of Revelation. You see, the problem is that many people don't realize that many of the books of the Old Testament contain just as many end-time prophecies as the book of Revelation does. And the fact is that some of the prophecies in the Old Testament books are still yet to be fulfilled. And there are some prophecies in the book of Revelation that have already been fulfilled. And so what we see here is that the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation are companion books. If you want to understand the symbols of the book of Revelation, you've got to go to the book of Daniel and you've got to understand those prophecies and you've got to put the symbols with those in the book of Revelation and you put the two of them together and it paints a beautiful picture for you of what's coming on this earth. About two-thirds of the verses in the book of Revelation are either a direct or at least a partial quote from the Old Testament. It's no wonder that people are confused about the book of Revelation because there are so many people today that say the Old Testament is no longer applicable. We don't need to study the Old Testament. It is done away with. We just need the New Testament for today. And it's a shame that people think that way. Because think about what I said in our question and answer time. When Paul said to Timothy, the Bible is inspired by God. Right? All Scripture is inspired by God. Which Scripture was Paul talking about? He was talking about the Old Testament, right? Because the New Testament wasn't even written yet. But of course, we know the New Testament is inspired as well. And so we've got to put the whole thing together. It's like a puzzle, and we've got to fit the pieces together. Friends, we don't want to be just Old Testament Christians. We don't want to be just New Testament Christians. We want to be Bible Christians. Amen? 
You've got to put the whole thing together in order to understand and get all of those things lined up so that we can be certain that we have the correct interpretation. And that's why I suggested that we adopt this theme for our series, and that is, if it's in the Bible, I believe it. But if it's not in the Bible, or if it's in contrary, or or disagrees with the Bible, then I'm throwing it out. It's not for me. I want to make sure that I'm going by what the Word of God says. Amen? And so let's go to Daniel, and let's look at this book that, that Jesus recommends that we need in order to understand end time prophecy. Friends, tonight we are going to look at a prophecy that is so amazing, so incredible. It so perfectly shows that God is real. It so perfectly shows that God knows the future. God knows the end from the beginning. That that prophecy alone has turned countless skeptics into believers. And so let's pull back the curtain of prophecy and let's see what God has in store for us. Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is the last of the major prophets and so he's right before the little book of Hosea. Uh, that's going to be page 1018 of your seminar Bible. If you find Ezekiel it's right after that. That's page 1018 in the Bibles that are on the table. But in this prophecy, we're going to see that there was an ancient king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. And he went to bed one night, probably just like most every other night, but that night he had a dream. And that dream was so powerful. That dream was so shocking. That dream was so incredible that he woke up out of his sleep and when he did, he couldn't remember what the dream was. But he knew that it was important. He knew that it was something that he needed to understand. And so as the king, and he can't sleep, he calls all of his advisors to come and see him. I don't want to just talk about it. I want to read it directly from the Word of God. Look with me in chapter 2 at verse 1. The Bible says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. And so they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, saying, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation." The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me in its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. You've got this king who has this dream. He knows that it's important. He knows that he needs to understand what this all means. And he wakes up and he can't remember what it is. And so 
what does he do? He calls his brain trust to come and to help him understand this thing. He calls his leaders. And I want you to notice what kind of groups of people that he's calling. He's calling those who claim to be able to communicate with the gods. He's calling those who claim to be able to tell the future by reading the stars. He calls those who claim that they have supernatural power because they can speak to the dead. And he says to them, tell me what I dreamt. And boy, I just love what the Chaldeans do here. You know, the Chaldeans, they're the really smart ones of the group. They're the PhDs of the day. And they say to him, well, you tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. Well, that's good, isn't it? You tell us what it is and I'm sure we can come up with something. Right? We'll tell you something that's going to satisfy you. But these people claim to be able to have this supernatural power. They've been on his payroll and he's putting them to the test. He says, no, you're going to tell me what the dream was and then I'll be pretty certain that you can interpret it. Let's pick up what happens. Look at with me at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and they said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with men or with flesh. For this reason the king was angry and very furious, and he gave the command to destroy all of the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. I want you to notice here that Daniel is lumped in with the wise men, isn't he? But it should be pretty apparent to us that for some reason Daniel wasn't there the night before. Because he's surprised about this decree, right? And he says, why? What's going on? Why is this so urgent? And he finds out what happens. And I want you to notice what he does. Look at verse 16. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Boy, that took a lot of courage, didn't it? Because he could have walked in and the king would have said, there's one of the wise men, get him. Right? But Daniel had to find out what's going on here and he needed some time. And so he goes into the king. And for some reason... The king gives him his request. Now, it may be that the king realized, hey, wait a minute, Daniel wasn't here in last night's meeting. It may be that the king realized that he was in a pickle. 
He knew that he needed the help of the wise men in order to be able to try and figure out what this dream was, but now he was having them all killed. Whatever the reason was, he gives Daniel that time that he needed. And I want you to notice that Daniel sprung right into action. Verse 17 says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from God of heaven concerning this secret, and so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go there with you, but you can go back to Daniel chapter 1 and you can find out how Daniel and his three friends ended up being a part of that group called the wise men. But the first thing that Daniel does is he gets together with his trusted friends and they have an emergency prayer meeting. Because they need to talk to the one who is full of wisdom. They need to talk to the one who knows the past, the present, and the future. And they need to talk to the one who is the great revealer of secrets. Daniel was wise enough to know that he couldn't answer the question either. He was going to have to go to a source outside of himself. And so they laid their request before the Lord. And then notice what happens in verse 19. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. I want you to think about that for a minute. I don't think that we should uh, consider it extraordinary that God answered their prayer. After all, God is in the prayer business, isn't He? God tells us to come to Him with our needs. And so Daniel and his friends go and pray and God answers. We should expect that to be a good thing, a normal thing. But what is extraordinary to me is that Daniel and his friends pray and then they go to bed. And apparently they fall asleep. Now I want you to put yourself in Daniel's position for a minute. If you knew that you needed a certain piece of information before the morning, and you knew that if you didn't have that piece of information, that it was going to cost you your life, do you think that you would be able to go to sleep? I don't think so. I think I'd be pulling an all-nighter, right? I'd be searching Google. I'd be on the Internet. I'd be calling up a friend. I'd be searching the Word of God trying to find an answer somewhere, right? I want you to notice that Daniel had an incredible, implicit faith and trust in God. He prayed and then he went to bed. And he had such a peace that he was able to go to sleep. And then Daniel is given the vision. He's given the dream and he's given its interpretation. Daniel goes to bed thinking God is either going to give me the answer or I'm going to be a martyr for God, but either way, I'm okay with it. Friends, I'd like to have faith like that, wouldn't you? He has an implicit trust in God. I want you to notice what the Bible says, Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Just a couple of verses later, verse 11, it says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? God granted His request, and it is evidence to us, it should be evidence to us, that God is listening. God wants to hear from you. He wants to hear your prayers. And so if we ask for forgiveness, we can be certain that God is there. If we are asking God to increase our faith, we can be sure that God is there. If we're asking Him to change our hearts, we can be certain that God is going to answer those prayers because they're in agreement with His plan for your life. And when we trust in the promises of His Word, His Word has a power to accomplish in our lives those things that He says He can do. You think about Daniel. He woke up in the morning and the first thing he did was praise God. Thank you for answered prayer. Right? That should be a lesson to us too as well, shouldn't it? Every morning getting up and praising God and thanking Him for answered prayer. Thanking Him for bringing us through the night. It is an example and an an inspiration to us. You go later in the book of Daniel to Daniel chapter 6 and you see that Daniel was an incredible man of prayer. And he was not going to be stopped when they told him that he couldn't pray to anyone but to the king. He was not going to do anything to go away from or prevent that sweet communion with God that he was accustomed to, even at the threat of death. And so now Daniel finds himself before King Nebuchadnezzar. And notice that the first thing that the king asks him in verse 26, well... Can you tell me what I dreamed? Right? That's the first thing that the king wants to know. And notice what Daniel says. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. Notice what Daniel is saying. The king says, Can you tell me what I dreamt? And Daniel's basically saying, "Uh Uh-uh. In fact, he's saying, all of your wise men, they can't tell you either. There's no one that can tell you what happened in the privacy of your bedroom. But Daniel doesn't stop there, because if he would have, he would have been dead, wouldn't he? Notice what he says in verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter or in the last days. Friends, if this is something that's needed for the latter days, is it something that's needed for us today? Absolutely. And notice what Daniel is doing. He's directing the king's mind away from trying to get answers from man... And he's directing him to God. And so he says to him, 
the God of heaven is showing you what's going to happen in the future. God wanted more than Nebuchadnezzar's attention. God wanted His heart. Today there are many people who study the Bible. And they may come to a a Bible study like this one, and they're all excited because of what's happening in the world, and they're looking at the signs, and they want to know what's happening next. But God wants more for us than just to give us information. God wants to give us transformation. God wants to change our lives. He wants to show you what He has planned, and He wants to be able to guide you through the time that we are heading in, the time of trouble, the time of challenges, the time of difficulty. Now, Daniel goes right to the point. Look with me in Daniel chapter 2, and this is the dream. Starting in verse 31. This is the dream. Daniel says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze or brass, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth." That was the dream. Now you can imagine, can't you, as Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar the dream, you can imagine him thinking and he's going, yeah, 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 that's right. Now I remember. That's it. Yeah, yeah, you were right on, Daniel. That was it. Do you think that the king was ready to trust his interpretation? Absolutely. He was absolutely ready. Notice... Daniel said, this is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. Friends, I want you to notice that the Bible needs no interpretation. I want you to notice that the Bible interprets itself. It speaks for itself. If God gave Daniel understanding of the dream, then we can be sure that Daniel is able to interpret it. God gives no prophecy and then leaves it to us to decide what it means. Every prophecy has an interpretation if we will go and dig into our Bibles to find it. Friends, no human can define divine thought. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned and the Bible is like a giant puzzle. 
And so if one piece is missing, we don't go outside of the Bible to try and figure out what it is. We've got to dig into the Word of God and find out where that piece is described to us so we can fit it in there and we can have a perfect understanding of prophecy. So I want to review what Daniel told him. He said, you saw this image and it had a head of gold. It had chest and arms of silver. A belly and thigh of brass or bronze. It had legs of iron and feet and toes that were partly iron and partly clay. And then you saw a stone that was cut out, not by man, but it came down and it hit the statue on the toes and it broke it into pieces and it flew throughout the earth like chaff in the wind and then the stone became a great big mountain. Friends, in about 150 words, God outlines 2,500 years of earth's history. Friends, this dream is extraordinary. It's gripping. It's intriguing. Can you imagine what was going through the mind of Nebuchadnezzar as Daniel is describing to him what he dreamt? I imagine that he's starting to put the pieces together. He's starting to realize that's exactly what it was. And he's convinced that the person who stood before him was someone who was telling the truth. This image holds the key to unlock many of the mysteries of Daniel and Revelation. And it describes to us a message that God has for us even down to our generation. It is a prophetic timeline. It is the master key to Bible prophecy. A correct understanding of this image is imperative as everything else in Bible prophecy works within the larger framework of this prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. And without much hesitation, Daniel moves right to the interpretation of the dream. And it starts in verse 37. Notice what he says. He says, You, O king, are the king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, He has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. He says, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another and a third kingdom of bronze or brass, which shall rule over all of the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all of the others." 
whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. Now friends, clearly, as Daniel is giving this interpretation of the dream, we should be able to see that he is talking about the rise and fall of kingdoms. Did you catch that? One kingdom is going to come after another, after another, right? And he says to him, King, you are this head of gold. And then after you, after your kingdom, there's going to be another kingdom that arises, and then another kingdom, and then another. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that each one of those elements of that statue represented four different consecutive world-ruling empires. I want you to notice here that we simply need to let the Bible interpret itself. We cannot come up with our own interpretation. We can't decide that that interpretation was wrong and and we want it to be something else. Right? We cannot have our own private interpretation. God is telling us what the dream meant. One important point here is that the Bible speaks for itself. And the reason that it's not of any private interpretation, notice what 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible is not up to interpretation. The interpretation is already there, regardless of what we learned in the past, regardless of what our favorite pastor says, regardless of what our favorite author writes. The Bible interprets itself. It's not of a private interpretation. I can't decide for myself what it means. Friends, you don't have to go to a religious guru to find out or explain what it means. Anyone who comes with a sincere heart, anyone who is coming to investigate God's Word and is being led by the Holy Spirit, God is going to help them to understand it. Amen? And it is as relevant for us today as it was in the day that it was written. The Bible speaks to every generation. And prophecy is open to our understanding. It's not for just some people to understand. And friends, I want that tonight, don't you? I want to understand what all of this means. Notice again that Daniel says in chapter 2, verse 38, telling King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And so the beginning of Daniel's prophecy, this is a time prophecy. And the beginning of this prophecy begins with the kingdom of Babylon. And friends, gold was a very fitting description of ancient Babylon. 
Gold was everywhere in that city. There were very few kingdoms in ancient history that could rival Babylon. It was one of the most wealthy, one of the most magnificent empires in all of history. Historians are still in awe of its greatness. Gold was so plentiful in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom that it would be used like gravel for us. And I want you to notice what has been said about this golden kingdom. Here is a historian by the name of Aeschylus who says Babylon was teeming with gold. It's estimated that the altar and the throne of Babylon consumed eight and a half tons of gold. Here's another historian by the name of uh, Herodicus. He says lavishness of gold was in the sanctuary of Belmarduk. That was the temple that they had, the, the god that they worshipped in ancient Babylon. And when you go to Daniel chapter 3, Right after Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, you see that Nebuchadnezzar has a statue to resemble this dream that he has. He has it manufactured. It's 90 feet tall. It's 9 feet wide. And it's made out of solid gold. In fact, in Daniel chapter 1 and other historical places, we find that Nebuchadnezzar went and captured Jerusalem. He went and put a siege on it. That's why Daniel was in Babylon. Many of them had been taken back, but they also wanted to do that because of the gold in the temple and all of the gold articles. They wanted that gold. They brought it back with them. So it totally makes sense to us that God would use gold as a symbol of Babylon, doesn't it? Gold was everywhere. It makes total sense. Babylon was one of the most magnificent kingdoms in all of history. There was the hanging gardens of Babylon that were a wonder of the ancient world. People came from all over the place to see them. Babylon was not only rich, but it was well fortified. Historical records show that Nebuchadnezzar had a plan for his kingdom. He wanted his kingdom to rule the world forever. Here is a cuneiform tablet that archaeologists found. And when they deciphered the writing on here, they found some amazing words from Nebuchadnezzar himself. He was talking about the fortifications of Babylon. And he says, Babylon, I strengthen and establish the name of my reign forever. Here's another piece of that same tablet. It says the whole earth was prostrate at Babylon's feet. Babylon, the city which is the delight of my eyes, which I have glorified, may it last forever. That's what Nebuchadnezzar had planned. That was his thinking, right? But Babylon was the head of gold. It was the first world ruling empire in Daniel's vision. But Babylon wouldn't rule forever. And history shows us that Babylon ruled the world from 605 to 539 B.C. 
And as Daniel is describing to Nebuchadnezzar that he's that head of gold, you can imagine he was pretty excited about that, right? But then he found out that his kingdom wasn't going to last forever. And so what does he do? He builds that statue in Daniel chapter 3 and he makes it out of pure gold trying to show that his kingdom was going to last forever. It wasn't going to be like the God of heaven said, but it was going to last forever. That's what he was trying to say. But notice that Daniel told him what was coming next. Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, But after you, after your kingdom, shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, not as elaborate, not as glamorous, not as beautiful, and a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all of the earth. And so here we see that he is told that there would be another nation that would rule the world after Babylon. Now I don't have time to show you right now, but we're going to get to this. But I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag right now. If you go to Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, and you look at those, you can discover that they are parallel prophecies with Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, you have these four medals that are symbols of four world ruling empires. If you go to Daniel chapter 7, you have four beasts that come out of the earth, but they have the same characteristics of the four. And then you go to Daniel chapter 8, and you see again that these kingdoms are being depicted here. And so we're going to be talking more about that later. But he goes into the next kingdom and he says that there is a chest and arms of silver. And this depicts the Medo-Persian Empire. History shows that, but we don't want to trust history. We want to go into the Word of God, right? So if you go to Daniel chapter 8 and you see the animals that are depicted there that are parallel prophecies with Daniel chapter 2, you will see that Medo-Persia is named by name. It's right there. It tells us. The Bible interprets itself. The Bible reveals and history confirms that Babylon would fall to the Medes and the Persians. The Medo Persian Empire was two different kingdoms. You had the kingdom of the Medes and the kingdom of the Persians. But they formed an alliance. And in that alliance, they conquered the world. Eventually, the Persian Empire became stronger. And many times in history, it's just called the Persian Empire. But it was the Medes and the Persians that defeated Babylon. And it's an amazing story of how they did it. History shows that on October 13th, 539 B.C., that Babylon fell. And the amazing part of the story is how it happened. You see, Babylon was a very fortified city. The walls of the city were so thick that historians say you could drive two chariots side by side on top of it. There were no kingdoms of that time that could defeat them. 
But they didn't count on the fact that God is control and He raises up and He puts down kingdoms. Amen? And so, King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire brought his army against the city of Babylon. They, they put a siege against it. You have this walled city and you take your army and you surround it and you either start lobbing weapons at them or you just sit back and wait until they run out of food and they come out and tell you, we give up. Right? That was what a siege was. And Cyrus does that. And the king of Babylon thought that that was so ridiculous, they thought that that was so funny, that that particular night he had a drunken feast with a thousand of his lords. They weren't worried about the Medes and the Persians breaking through that thick wall. They weren't worried about them trying to hold out longer than they were. Babylon had a 20-year food supply within the city walls. They had all of the water that they needed. There was a river called the Euphrates River that ran right through the middle of the city. And when they built the walls, they built them right to the edge of the river and then they put a capstone over that so that they could go across the wall. And the interesting thing about this is that as they're having this drunken feast... Cyrus has this impression. And what he does is he takes his army and he goes upriver. And he digs a ditch. And he redirects the river. He dams it up. And now all he's got to do is take his army, walk down through the riverbed and into the city. Except there's one small thing. When they built the city walls, they built them right to the edge of the river. And then they built these huge iron gates and they attached them to the walls. And the river Euphrates was very deep and it was very fast moving river. And so they mounted the gates, the iron gates, and they pushed them out into the river and then the current just pushed them up against that top wall and held it there, and no one could move those gates. But now that he had stopped the river, now he just marches his army down there. They go down, they pull those gates open, they walk in, they send men up to the Ishtar gates, the big gates of the city. They open it up, everybody's involved in this drunken feast, and they just walk in, and they captured the city in one night. A mastermind of military genius. No fighting, no nothing. In one night, Babylon fell. And you want to know what the interesting part about it is? Notice what this prophecy says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before Him and loose the armor of kings to open before Him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Here we see 
that 180 years before Cyrus was even born, God says, this is how it's going to happen. Friends, you can trust the Bible tonight. The Bible is no ordinary book. For many years, there were skeptics that said it never happened that way. It never happened as the Bible predicted it. And then archaeologists found this cuneiform cylinder and they called it the Cyrus Cylinder because in there, Cyrus tells exactly how he did it. Exactly how the Word of God said he would do it. But Daniel moves forward to the next kingdom. He says in verse 39, then another, a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule all of the earth. When you look at Daniel chapter 8, I told you Daniel 7 and 8 are parallel prophecies to Daniel 2. When you look at Daniel chapter 8, you will see that the nation of Greece is named as the third kingdom. History also shows us that the Greeks defeated the Medes and Persians in the battle of Arabella in 331 BC to become the next world ruling empire. During the battle, here's the amazing part, during the battle, the Greeks were outnumbered by the Medes and Persians 10 to 1. And yet, the Greek army defeated the Medes and the Persians. And you want to know why? Because they had a certain type of armor. And you want to guess what it was made of? Bronze. They had bronze helmets, bronze shields, bronze spears. And they defeated the world with that. They ruled from 331 to 168 B.C. You remember in your history books Alexander the Great? Alexander was the king of Greece. He had a great military mind. He was a military genius. And in his early 30s, in just seven years, he conquered the world. But the sad part is, he couldn't conquer his own passions. He couldn't conquer his own sins. And history tells us that he died in his early 30s. Some historians say he was 30. Some say 32. Some say 33. And then there are some that say that he died of alcohol poisoning. You see, there was this thing that they had called the Herculean Cup. It was this great big cup that they would fill with beer or alcohol of something and they would challenge each other who was the man among the men who could drink the Herculean cup. And history says that one night Alexander drank the Herculean cup. Not once, but twice. And then he died right after that. Friends, tonight there is no human being so strong that they can conquer the evil tendencies of the human heart without divine help. 
That is why we must look to a power outside of ourselves, a power higher than ourselves, if we are going to escape the things that are coming upon this world. Jesus Christ is the only one who has the power. He's the only one that can give us the victory. Even the greatest kings of the earth still fall short without His help. And as Daniel comes closer to the end of the statue, I want to point out one very specific point. The statue is a giant timeline that moves us from the days of Daniel all the way down to our day and beyond. Notice Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all of the others. Daniel reveals that there's going to be a fourth world ruling empire and it is going to be so powerful, it is going to be so strong that it is going to crush all of its enemies. And there is not a historian on the planet that could argue that Greece was defeated by Rome. Many historians call Rome the iron monarchy of Rome. They call it the Iron Kingdom. And there's a reason for that. Because Rome developed advanced battle techniques and war strategies enabling them to crush all of their enemies with little difficulty. They had also mastered the art of iron weaponry. And now those nations with bronze and wood and stone were no match for the battle-hardened soldiers of Rome. You see, Rome also went away from... There used to be long swords that men would fight with, but they had short swords. And they trained their men to go into close combat to get them with those short iron swords. They had iron swords. They had iron shields. Surely, the words of Bible prophecy are ringing true today. Amen? As iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all of the others. You'll remember that Rome was the world ruling empire when Jesus was on the earth. He spoke to Roman kings. He was beaten by Roman soldiers. He was nailed to the cross with iron nails. A Roman seal was placed on His tomb, but it couldn't hold Him. The Roman soldiers fell as dead men when the angel came and rolled back the stone. There is no king, there is no empire that can defy the prophecies that God has spoken. I want you to keep in mind that these empires were predicted long before they ever came into power. Rome took over in 168 B.C., but it was predicted hundreds of years before. God accurately predicted four world-ruling empires. And giving the opportunity, we would expect that there would be a fifth. But that's not what the prophecy said. 
Daniel chapter 2, verse 41 says, Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. And yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. Clearly, as Daniel is interpreting this dream that God has given him, he is talking about the rise and fall of world-ruling kingdoms. He says, King, you are the head of gold. But then there's going to be another kingdom symbolized by a chest and arms of silver. And then there's going to be another and then another. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that those four elements of that statue represented four of those different kingdoms that were going to rule the world. Friends, please, we must simply let the Bible interpret itself. We cannot come up with our own interpretation. It is never safe to create your own interpretation. The Bible said that the kingdom would be divided. And that's exactly what happened in history. The empire of Rome fell in the year 476 A.D. It wasn't taken over by another kingdom, another ruling empire. It crumbled from within. It crumbled from within from corruption, from betrayal. And it's incredible that Daniel was spot on hundreds of years before it even happened. He was 100% accurate with everything. God had revealed the future to him. Friends, you can trust the Bible tonight. And when Rome fell, it broke up into the ten divisions of Rome or what we call today the divisions of Europe. Ten divisions represented by the ten toes on that statue. These are those ten divisions. There was the Anglo-Saxons, the Lombards, the Burgundians, the Visigoths, the Franks, the Suevi, the Alemanni, the Herli, the Vandegals, and the Ostrogoths. And we can see how they are still the divisions of Europe today. The Anglo-Saxons are, that's England. The Italians, the Swiss, those of Spain, France, Portugal, Germans. And then three of those were plucked out. And we're going to talk about that later in the seminar. Why that happened. But history shows that it's exactly what was predicted. Friends, we have a time prophecy that went from the days of Daniel all the way down to our time today in 2019. We still have the divisions of Europe. These nations are still in existence today. And we are living in the very tiptoes of that time prophecy. Let me ask you a question. Was there ever an attempt in history to try and unify Europe? Absolutely there was, right? Notice Daniel 2.43, and you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay. They will mingle with the seed of men, 
but they will not adhere to one another. There have been many attempts to reunify Europe, some through war and some through marriage, the mingling of the seed of men. But the Bible says they will not adhere, they will not stick to one another. They could never be reunited. Despite all of the genius attempts by kings and empires, God cannot be undone. And when He speaks, it remains true forever. Napoleon tried to reunite Europe. On paper, it should have been an easy victory. But he was defeated by a freak snowstorm in the middle of the summer. Does that seem like a coincidence to you? Or does that seem like the providence of God? In June of 1815, when Napoleon was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo, he wrote in his journal these words, God Almighty is too much for me. His tomb stands today as a silent witness of the faithfulness of God's Word. God said that the kingdom would be divided and it would never be put back together again. Charlemagne tried to unite Europe. Charles V, Louis XIV, Napoleon, Wilhelm, Adolf Hitler, they all tried and they all failed. When God says something's going to pass, we can be sure that it will. And when God says something will never happen, we can be sure that it won't. The Bible has proven itself. God knows the end from the beginning. Friends, God can be trusted. The Bible can be trusted. I want you to look at this slide here. Is there anyone here that can tell me if you think you know what that yellow line means on the statue? Anybody? I wouldn't expect you to know, and so I'm just going to tell you. But that line represents the time of Daniel. Daniel was there in Babylon, and the Bible shows that he was there when the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. And so that's about where Daniel was when he died. That means that everything that was predicted after that was outside of human endeavor. God said that it was going to happen. Friends, the Bible is no ordinary book. It is inspired by the God of heaven. And we can trust Him. God alone knows the future. If Jesus controls the rise and the fall of world ruling empires, do you think that you can trust Him to be your guide in these last days? I think so. So what is the next event that is going to happen in the days of the kings? What time period is it that we are living in in earth's history? I want you to notice that Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven 
will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. I ask you tonight, when is this talking about? When is God going to set up His kingdom? Was it in the time of the Babylonians? Was it in the time of the Medes and Persians? Greece? Rome? Or divided Rome? It's now. How exciting it is to see Bible prophecy being fulfilled right before our eyes today. This scenario is repeated in the book of Revelation. I told you that Daniel and Revelation are companions. I want you to notice that in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 12 through 14, it says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. This prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet. It is in the future. But I ask you the question, is there now a move to try and reunite Europe today? Is there a move today to try and bring all of the nations of the world together under one government? Absolutely. But the Bible describes that it's going to be a temporary unity. There's going to be one more attempt to reunify Europe. Notice what it says about them. These are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. And so here is a prediction that for one prophetic hour, a short period of time, the nations of the world are going to come together and they are going to try and unite under a one world government. There's a plan today to reunite Europe. This is the the flag of the common market of Europe. And this is their motto. Many voices, one people. The Bible did not predict a fifth world ruling empire that would rise out of Rome. It predicted a divided empire. Another single world empire would not follow Rome. The feet of iron and clay represent the divisions of the Roman Empire and that is exactly what happened. Europe was divided like the prophecy described that it would be. The prediction in Revelation 17, 12-14 says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and kings of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. Friends, do you want to cast your lot on the winning side? I do. We can choose Jesus tonight. So how is it that God is going to set up His kingdom that is going to cause all of these earthly kingdoms to crumble? Notice what Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 says, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. 
It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Friends, the statue represents earthly kingdoms of this world. And then there is this stone that is cut out without hands. And I ask you, what is that stone? And I'll tell you, it is the rock of ages. None other than Jesus Christ who is coming back to this earth and He is going to set up His kingdom. Jesus Christ is that stone that is described. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says, And that rock was Christ. There are many places in Scripture that Jesus is described as the rock. God and Jesus are often depicted as rock in Scripture. The rock that is cut out without human hands is none other than the return of Jesus Christ. Friends, we're there. The prophecy is being fulfilled. It's happening in our time. Jesus is going to come very soon. And there is no one that knows the day or the hour, but we are called by God to prepare. We are called to get ready because the day is coming. Daniel tells the king in verse 45, that the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure because God knows the end from the beginning. Friends, you can know tonight that Jesus Christ died for you. You can know that He has a plan for your life. You can know that He wants to give you eternal life. You can know no greater love than the love that He offers you tonight. His love is self-sacrificing. And you can know that Jesus is coming again and He wants to take you home. Remember what we read last night in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. And if anyone lets Me in, I will come in and I will dine with Him and He with Me. So let me ask you some questions. Have you seen clearly from Daniel chapter 2 that God knows the future? Have you seen that history has proven it all the way down to our day and beyond? Do you see clearly that the next world ruler is going to be Jesus Christ coming back to this earth and setting up His kingdom? Have you seen how the Bible interprets itself so that we don't have to? And would you like to be ready for the coming of Jesus? Is that the desire of your hearts? Let me see your hands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, what a powerful prophecy. You've shown us where we are at in this prophetic timeline, and once again we see that we are so near to the coming of Jesus. We are nearer than we have ever been before. And Lord, we want to be ready. We want to be able to navigate the murky waters of the things that are coming upon this world. Lord, we need You. We want to surrender our hearts to You. We want to ask You to, if You haven't already, Lord, come into our heart and be our Lord and Savior. 
Forgive us of our sins. And Lord, help us follow You. Help us to study our Bibles so that we can understand where we're going. And Lord, when we find those truths that cause us to question, Lord, give us grace. Lord, give us mercy. And Lord, help us to fall in love with You. Jesus said, My people perish because they do not have a love of the truth. Lord, we want to fall in love with the truth. Because when we do, we fall in love with You. You are the truth, the way, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by You. Lord, we need You. We're praying and asking that You'll do a powerful work in our lives, that You'll prepare us for the things that are coming upon the world so that we can stand at the brightness of Your coming. And we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.